Pulp MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I wanna say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome to another episode of the Industry Seating Podcast. It is Sunday, June 26th, and uh, yeah, got an off weekend, first off weekend of Lucas Oil Pro Motocross. There was a race in uh, in Indonesia this weekend for MXGP, which I am, uh, say, about halfway through watching, so I won't cover that necessarily. Maybe I'll do a little midweek update like I did last week on that, but this week I wanted to take an opportunity to uh, both answer some questions that had been sent to me that I haven't gotten to, and I also wrote some of my own questions, things that if I was submitting questions for a podcast, things that I would be wondering about. Now, it's a little bit of a weird dynamic because I'm going to answer my own questions, but that's okay. I think they're, uh, they're valid questions that if you know the average fan who's not plugged into the sport, you, you, know, have a, you work at a job that's not inside the industry, um, which is, is normal. Most people, right? I, I totally get that. And, uh, I just thought they were kind of relevant questions that maybe somebody would find interesting. And if you don't, Hey, it's okay. You can always fast forward it. I do want to thank sponsors of this podcast, Pirelli tires, guts, racing, plum Creek funding, fast foundry works, connection, pro glow wash, grant stone boots and fly racing. And I'll get into a little bit more detail on them before we uh, wrap this thing up. But without waiting any further, let's just do it. Let's jump right into it. It'll be a little bit shorter this week because I'm not, you know, it's an off weekend, but I didn't want to just not do a show. I I know that a lot of these shows get people through the week. And I don't know if there'll be a pulp show or not tomorrow. I bet there's not. Um, So maybe this will give you a little bit of added content to get you through your work week. Uh, Just a little bit of insight for me. I will be headed to California tomorrow. Uh, it's been a few days down there. We'll kind of make the uh, the rounds, see a bunch of the Moto Media, you know, the Cycle News and Vital MX and uh, Kellen Brower with Racer X and uh, yeah, just all kinds of people down there. Uh, Mark Tilly, um, just kind of the heavy hitters on the media side and, and get them prepared for 2023 and our fire racing lineup. Because how this kind of works, and I know this is probably not the most interesting thing, but just to give you more insight, we kind of have to give these guys a heads up and get them all the assets and prepare them way in advance. So when we are ready to launch, which will probably be, I'm going to say August, maybe September one this year, everybody's going to be late. Just, just know that whether it's us or whichever gear company is your gear of choice, everybody's going to be behind because that's just the nature of the world right now. It's just not possible to get uh, the vendors. Vendors can't get their product here on time. The ports are really slow. Uh, logistics are really slow. Uh, and that's just that just leads to delays. So everybody's going to be a little bit late. But we need to do the best job we can as a brand to get our media partners prepared early. So they're way done in advance. And when we say, hey, we're going, you know, maybe we get stuff early and we go August seventh or we're late and we go September first, either way, those media outlets, all they have to do is just press go on their end and they have all these assets and articles and content created and all these things. Um because the, the last thing you want to do to media is not have them prepared and they have to rush, which means they don't do as good of a job as they would like. Um which make in the end makes them look less effective and they really don't appreciate that, right? They want to do the best job they can, not only for themselves because it's their reputation on the line, but also because we are partners with them, right? We, we compensate them to advertise for us and we want them to do the best job possible on that end as well. They want to be proud of their work. So I will be doing that 
throughout this week. Um, and it's usually a really fun trip. It's, it's mellow. It's a lot of like small talk and catching up. And, um, I always kind of leave there with a better understanding of the state of the industry and the state of the sport, because those guys talk to everybody, right? I try to do the best I can on that front, but I don't talk to competitors about how their business is going. These guys do, and they can't give us specifics, but you get to take the temperature a little bit of, of the industry and the sport and our companies hurting. Are they doing really well? Um, you just get really valuable insight on a lot of that stuff. So that leads me. It's a nice segue into my first question of the day. And I wrote this one. This is not one that was submitted because there are a couple that were submitted. This is one I wrote. And what is the current status of business and power sports and also correlated to that, uh, you know, the gear, apparel, helmet business. So when, you know, COVID hit, um, things were pretty healthy before that, right? 2019, uh, fly racing specifically, we were on an uptrend. Things were going pretty well. Um, we had goals and targets that we were aiming for that were getting really challenging to hit. Um, you know, it was really a battle for market share in somewhat of a flat industry. I felt like we were outperforming within our industry. Like we were on an uptrend where I feel like the overall business was flat. And you get uh, an idea of that because we talk to our retailers, we talk to everybody we can to try to get an overall picture and they're all kind of saying it's just flat. So if we're seeing increases within a flat market, that's, that's a net positive, right? If it's such a really good thing and that's what you're always aiming for because when COVID hit, business exploded. And that sounds crazy, right? But there were certain markets, housing, power sports, like grocery stores, things like that. Um, all those businesses exploded in business during COVID because of the lockdown and there were only certain things you could do. Um, so the places you could spend money and I think like for power sports, it was there were no organized sports. So parents were desperately looking for something to do with their kids, right? So they bought side-by-sides and camping equipment and quads and dirt bikes and you need helmets to do all those things. Um, so anything related to outdoor stuff and power sports really saw a huge uptick and fly racing Western power sports was very much involved in that uptick. Um, we, we grew tremendously in the 2020 and 2021 calendar years. I mean, just gigantic gains, which was awesome. You know, it wasn't great. Like obviously no one's saying COVID was great, but we had no control over that. And we honestly thought we were just going to be doing everything we could to stay in business. And it went completely the opposite, right? We saw like two weeks of it being really slow in April, April of 2020, the first two weeks were probably the slowest our company has seen in a decade. And then all of a sudden it just went wide open and all the way kind of through the end of 2021. And it was just a crazy, you know, let's say 19 or 20 months of growth and we couldn't keep up and we couldn't keep anything in stock. And we were able to sell everything that we couldn't sell before, like close out stuff going back for like 2017 and 2018. It was just this terrific time as far as sales go for our brand. And we knew, or at least I did anyway, I knew that was going to be short lived. Like there, that is that trend was going to not necessarily reverse, but slow down. That was not sustainable growth. And I had been there for eight years, almost eight years before COVID hit. So I, I knew what was realistic as far as growth percentages. And I also saw what was happening and I'm like, this is awesome. We need to, to make the most of this and scale up and try to meet demand, be as efficient as possible. Let's really take advantage of this opportunity within a t terrible situation. But we also need to be mindful that this is not permanent. This isn't the new normal. This is going to significantly pull back and then we're going to have a new normal. I don't know where that is, right? We, that's where you have to be really smart because our forecasting as a brand, we are every bit of 12, 12 months to 18 months out. Um, easily 12 months out on, on purchasing like a helmet or anything like that. You're, you're about a year out gear, you know, as far as apparel, gloves, pants, jerseys, things like that, you're more like eight or nine months out. 
um, you have a little bit of leeway. You can make a, a couple smaller orders in there. But it, it, point being, it's really extended period of time that you need to be guessing at. And you can't just be asleep at the wheel and be like, oh, yeah, well, we sold X last year. We're, no problem. We'll sell at least that and probably more. If we keep growing, we'll sell you know, X plus 20% again or whatever that happens to be. You can't possibly think that way if you're paying attention to the way things are going, right? So we have to be forward thinking. You know, if you ever pay attention to the stock market, the stock market is always really far ahead of what's going on, right? It's anticipating what's going to happen six months, a year, 18 months out. We, in the, in the apparel industry, and I'm sure it's the same for other power sports brands. We have to be very similar to that. We have to act accordingly to that. Um, and we don't always get it right, but we have to try to because that's what our lead times are. And for those who don't, you know, lead time is just if we order today, when is that product going to arrive at our warehouse? That's, that's your lead time. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really far out right now. Like it's the most extended that I've ever seen or heard about in this industry period. I, I don't know of a time that it's ever been like this as far as we have to make decisions for a really long time from now that we're held to. That's just the way the industry is because of, you know, when I started this topic, the delays, right? The shipping delays, the vendor delays, getting materials, the ports take longer, everything takes longer. So that back, all that is backed out, right? The time that you need to make a decision is backed out. So we have to be smarter than ever. We have to really be doing our homework. We have to be on top of the state of things, right? And that's why this upcoming trip this week gives us more insight. You know, it's not like we're ordering right now, but the more information we have, the more timely we can be, we can make more prudent decisions based off of what we think demand will be. Um, You know, and, and we were way wrong. Like if you, we were ordering in 2019, of course, we weren't prepared for this COVID explosion in sales, right? So we were caught way off guard. Like we were sold out of everything. Um, you know, we, our kinetic helmet is our, our entry-level helmet, but it's, I would say it's probably the highest selling helmet per unit volume-wise in, in the U.S. or worldwide. That, that would be my realistic guess. Um, but there's no way we were prepared for that. We, we saw almost a 100% jump in sales as far as units in 2020, there's no way we could possibly keep up with that. So you're never going to be exactly right. But as we see this trend slowing down, that's what's happening. That's kind of what I'm getting to is power sports are sales are slowing down. Bike units are slowing down. Side-by-sides are slowing down. Gear is slowing down. It's just demand, right? And you're going to see more and more of that as what I believe we're probably already in a recession. You know, we'll find out in September, the, the second quarter reading. <clears throat> but I would, I would guess we probably are in one already. And I, I don't think it's going to get a lot better for a while. You know, as the Fed is fighting inflation, which they only have a few tools to do it. And the most notable of those is raising interest rates, which they're doing. They're, you know, they raised 75 basis points last time. I think they're, they're going to go 75 again in July. And... You know, they have a, there's kind of a mantra that, you know, when things are, they've kind of gotten away from them, they're going to move fast until they break something, right? And, and that breaking something could very well be the economy, send us into a recession. We'll see how deep and severe that recession is. You know, I think everybody's hoping that if we do have one, it's short and shallow. That's yet to be seen uh, because we, we don't, you know, we just came out of the, this really nasty one in, for COVID that was super short though. And now we could go into a more prolonged one if we can't get inflation down. And that's the key to all of this. That's the key to why power sports sales are slowing down. It's why, you know, it's demand destruction. And that's what the Fed is trying to do. And, and you should not ever mistake that what they're trying to accomplish is they're trying to slow the economy down. Point blank. They're trying to destroy the amount of demand, cool the economy down, and, you know, there's a saying that nothing fixes high prices like high prices, right? People just, they get exhausted of paying up for everything, right? Look at how expensive gas is. People are going to start driving less. They're going to start, start flying less because 
airplane tickets are so expensive. Hotel prices are insanely expensive right now. I, you know, I travel all the time. I'm very, um, you know, I'm very up on that situation and they're just through the roof right now to the point where a lot of companies are telling their workers like, Hey, you're not traveling for a while. This is out of control. This is, this will blow up every travel budget that we have. We're no different. We kind of been doing that as well. Um, but that's, what that's that's what's happening right behind the scenes if you just don't pay attention to any of this stuff which i'm sure a lot of people don't that's what's going on and you're going to see the economy slow down because that's what they're trying to accomplish they're basically begging to slow the economy down because that's what fixes inflation and if they don't get it under control soon right we're get, we're going to get another cpi reading uh here in a couple weeks if that doesn't show a market uh, slow down, like if we're still in the high eights for month over month inflation, they're going to go heavier. Like I don't, I don't know that they're going to go hundred basis points, but it's not out of the question. Last time they were saying they're not doing 75 and they went 75. They're not going to mess around with this. This is, you know, they have basically the fed has two mandates. One is to, you know, basically control the economy as far as inflation goes, keep inflation in line, keep price stability there. That's all in one. And then another one is maintain employment, maintain high employment. Well, employment's at an all-time high. There are more job openings than there are people that are willing to take those jobs. That's coming down a little bit. That's going to slow down. As these companies feel the effects of inflation, they're going to be offering, they're going to have less jobs to offer. If you pay attention to anything in the stock market, you'll notice that all these companies, these tech companies that are have insane amounts of money are laying people off. Facebook laid off a bunch of people. Uh, just go go look up job layoffs in the tech industry and everybody, Coinbase, uh, there's a ton of these companies that are, they're lowering their, their staff count because they don't, A, they don't need as many people, their earnings are slowing down and they need to be much more efficient with their, their cash burn. Um, so all of that translates back into power sports as well, right? Brands like Fly Racing, you know, companies like Western Power Sports, the OEMs, they're going to feel that pinch also. There's going to be less, you know, liquid, just liquidity for people to be spending, right? This insane amount of pent up demand where everybody's just buying everything. That's not, it's not sustainable. That's not going to be around. So I'm trying to give you a very well-rounded answer and the behind the scenes of why I think we're about to get a little bit of a heavier downturn. And that doesn't mean that companies are going to go out of business and or anything like that. I just don't think it's going to be as great as it was for the last few years. And it's going to, it's going to be a little bit of a harsh reality for some brands. Because my personal opinion is that there were some companies and some brands in the sport that were hanging on by a thread before COVID. COVID saved them. They bought them a bunch of time. But if those brands and those companies didn't figure out the underlying issues as to why things were going poorly during the last couple of years, they're going to go right back down the same path in, a, in next year or even this year. This year, next year, the year after, they're going to be in that spot or worse than they were because I think we're going to go into a worse, a short-term worse economy than we had in 2019. Like It's going to get harder than it was then. Um, so a lot of the trends that you've seen, a lot you know, dealers just printing money showrooms are just completely empty they have no products no dirt bikes you can't find anything you know you try to order something it's back ordered for six months i think you're going to see the opposite of that um, i think you're going to see a little bit of a glut in the system uh, because i think everybody probably ordered a lot in the last year a lot of product because there was there's been a ton of demand and your numbers and your forecasts would tell you to order a lot probably more than what the market will bear the end of this year and, and next year if we go into this recession that i think we're going into so it's it's going to be tougher uh we are we as a brand at fly racing are going to have to be smarter we're going to have to be really efficient we're going to have to to just really be on our game to hit our goals, you know, not go backwards, like continue to try to find ways to grow. That's going to mean taking market share from other brands where that wasn't even really a, a huge deal. You know, that that's always a, a big theme for every competitive company is take market share, take market share. 
we haven't really had to think about that all that much because there's been so much demand. We didn't need to go take other people's. We couldn't even fill orders that we had, let alone go out and chase somebody else's orders, like take away from some other brand's core business. That's about to reverse. We're going to have to be back into that game where it's like, okay, how can we be better than the next guy? How can we you know, entice and incentivize both dealers and end consumers to choose fly racing over any other brand? That's going to be a very, very important theme where it hasn't been for a couple of years. It's not going to be easy like it's been. And it's going to be a wake-up call for a lot of people, um, I, myself included, right? I'm 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 aware of it and I'm prepared for it, but it's still going to be a lot harder than it was because for me, you know, I, I go out and sell a lot. I go to dealers a lot. I help our great Western Power Sports reps write orders and, um, you know, we see those orders come in and we're always kind of monitoring them. Are they up? Are they down? How's the, the state of business? Um, our dealers super heavy on inventory. Uh, all that stuff helps us be wiser. But I got very accustomed to going into a dealer and the dealer needing products so bad because they had so much demand from the consumer that we were writing an order every time. Like it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. How much? It was more of like how much and what colors and how wide of a selection do you want? Not can I get you to write an order today to bring some product in? Like that's how it used to be. It's like, man, can we just get a win? Can we get, can we sell something today? The last couple of years it's been, I'm not even worried about, is it going to be a yes or no? Like that's, that's a foregone conclusion. It's going to be how big of an order and how much of their uh, apparel budget can we absorb by our brand, right? So it's, it's going to be interesting. I don't know. We're already seeing it. It's already, we're already in the midst of it. I just don't know how extreme it's going to get. That's, that's the real question. Brands that are not super financially stable or don't have a ton of spare capital or I guess if you were just a normal person, it would be kind of living paycheck to paycheck, right? When you're getting your, a dealer makes a payment or a retailer makes a payment, are you having to immediately flush that cash right back out the door to pay for your goods and services that you received and your employees? Or do you have built up capital and reserves that, you know, it's much more, a much more liquid business and healthier, right? If you were looking at that brand's balance sheet, how perilous is it? If they have a downturn for a few months or even a year or two, how dangerous is that? That's, it's going to be a really critical conversation for a lot of people. Um, everybody's going to have to face it. Just the level of danger of, as far as going out of business, chapter 11, things like that is going to be, it's going to be different for everybody. That's just, you know, everybody's business is in a different position, but you're going to hear a lot of that. Um, that's my prediction, uh, that I, you know, I'm not speaking the gospel here, but that's my prediction is, uh, as things are going to get difficult. So yeah, that was like a 20 minute answer, but, uh, that's, that's what I live every day. And I, so I have a lot of insight on it and I have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I will do a lot of talking and thinking about it this whole coming week. So a little bit of prep for me kind of helps me to talk these things out. And, uh, yeah, I hope you found at least something involved in that interesting. If you have questions on stuff like that, if like that's interesting to you or I'm happy to answer that stuff. Like I, I genuinely like it. I like thinking about how like macroeconomic stuff affects my day-to-day life and our fly racing business and, you know, Pulpamex fantasy, you know, I'm, I'm a partner in that and all those things like it, you know, the, the world economy and how healthy things are around the world and interest rates and, the housing situation, which is about to get really ugly, uh, that all has has ripple effects across every platform. You know, if you think you're in some industry that's immune to it, I would beg to differ. Uh, maybe you won't feel as as uh, severe as effects, but you're going to feel something. There, there's just no way to, uh, in my opinion, to completely avoid that. Okay, on to the next question. Uh, this was a question from a while back. A gentleman um, sent me a ton of questions, and I only picked a few. But he asks, when do you feel electric bikes will start showing up in professional races? My guess would be at least 2030. And how do you feel, uh, how, how do you feel that electric bikes should be classed against um, internal combustion engine bikes? 
So, you know, obviously I was just over uh, in Spain for that Stark uh, intro and great trip. I wrote about it and right, the new Racer X, I, we did a video on it. You know, it's kind of been everywhere, you know, if you're on social media or just if you've been paying attention at all, you've seen all these, all this content that came out about two weeks ago on this new Stark. And it's really stirred up a bunch of conversation from everyone from to race teams to organizing bodies, uh, the OEMs, because everyone's trying to position themselves and also make decisions on, do we let them race against, you know, the internal combustion engines? Do we build them their own class? Where are the other OEMs in their process? Do you know, they've been kind of tight lipped. Like, do they have bikes that they're about to drop that no one kind of knows about? Or are they pretty far out? Like, have they said, this is, not really on the, and you know, it's not really coming soon. So we've been putting on the back burner. I don't know the answer to those. Um, but this Stark release has really ramped up the urgency. I I will say that, um, as far as his question specifically, when do I think they'll show up in professional races? I think soon, but what I think is going to happen. And I know the Stark brass, their company is, is very much not wanting this. They want they want to race against the gas bikes like now. They want to immediately be allowed to compete against internal combustion engines like today. I personally don't think that will be the norm. Uh, I know that like the British championships and the Italian championships are allowing it because Sebastian Tortelli is going to race that bike in September against just in the normal race. So that'll be something to watch very closely. I think everybody that has a say in this situation will be watching that very closely. But I think what will happen is uh, whether it's the FIM or, you know, the MXGP decision makers, um, you know, the Coombs family has Loretta Lenz, GNCC, Lucas Oil Pro Motocross, all those things. And then, of course, Feld uh, Motorsports has Supercross, right? I would guess that all of them have to communicate some. Doesn't mean they all have to agree on the same decision, they could, they could disagree. They could go separate routes, but I'm sure they'll communicate. But I think more often than not, they will have their own class at the beginning. Uh, I think that they will want to give them a platform to go racing and see how it goes. Similar to, you know, what's uh, Formula E for, uh, you know, for Formula One, they have their own class, right, that they race in. In MotoGP, they have Moto E, that they have their own class that they race in. And there's a bunch of other series, like there's a British series that I think Bradley Smith races in. That's, that's an electric class. And I think that will be the route that's first adopted. I, it just makes the most sense to me. I haven't been told that I don't have, you know, I'm not trying to be, um, it's, that's not like a veiled answer where I'm, I'm holding back a bunch of minutes. It's just my opinion because I think there's going to be a lot of pushback. One, the o- the other OEMs are going to be like, no, we're not ready to go racing yet. And you can't just let them have the only bike in this field, the only electric unit coming into this class. I, whether that's fair or not is up for debate. I, I get it. But I think that would be the conversation is, you know, the KTM group and Honda and whoever are going to be like, no, 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 no. We spend tens of millions of dollars to go racing in your series, you're not letting this bike in to compete when we don't have an offering yet. That's a conversation I think would, that would be had. They may be like, if I said that, you know, like on the news, they'd be like, we do, you know, but I think behind closed doors, that's the conversation I think that would be had. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. That's just my opinion. So I think that's what you'll see first. I think you'll see a, you know, a MXGPE or, uh, you know, however, whatever the terminology ends up being, that's what I think you'll see first. Like, I think you'll see an electric bike class at Loretta's that will be, you know, open to whatever talent group, like it could be like, a, and I don't know, right. They have, I don't think they know yet that that's a, they're gonna have to work out a lot of logistics. So I know they don't have room for extra classes in the schedule, but they're going to have to make some sort of accommodation for this long-term 15 years from now, I think it's widely adopted. I think pretty much all the OEMs have offerings of some sort in this class. And I think there's some sort of hybrid transition that goes on. And then 20 years, 30 years from now, you're probably seeing all electric bikes. And I, there's, there are a lot of 
purists out there that are probably just threw their phone down or whatever, right? I, I get it, but I'm just trying to be realistic. Like you look at other industries, look at the car industry, it's everything's going towards electric. I just, eventually that's gonna catch up to moto as well. But I think we have a long way until it's the norm. I really do. Um, going to Spain, seeing the challenges, but also the tech, you know, there's a lot of technology that is really appealing. I think it's just gonna be a longer transition from moto than it would be for the car industry because you look at the car industry and how much money they have to throw at these projects like GM and Ford and you know even Ferrari's building one they have billions upon billions of dollars to toss at this stuff motorcycles for one there's not as much demand like moto people are pretty hardcore with what we like so I don't think I don't think people are beating down the door at Honda going you got to build us an electric bike right I think a lot of people are happy with the offerings. They just want a really good motorcycle. Um, so demand always rules, right? Doesn't mean there isn't demand, just not this overwhelming, you know, like I don't think the Honda board are having proxy fights over not creating enough electric motorcycles. Like that's something that goes on in like the, you know, the car industry right now. So I think we have more time, you know, that 2030 timeline uh, that this gentleman asked about could be that could be right i don't have a really hard opinion on a timeline um, i just know it is coming i just think it's going to be a it's going to take time um, and until demand is just something that everybody can't deny you're not going to see a rush to do it you're not going to see brands just pouring every you know available resource into it until they're forced to demand always rules the day you know, and, and brands and OEMs and vendors and manufacturers have to abide by demand. And until you see it really ramp up, you know, and that, that could change quickly. You know, I'll say that too. If this Stark releases and they deliver a bunch of bikes and they can't keep them in stock and they're just pushing out crazy amounts of units, then maybe you see like the OEMs would be like, oh man, there's a huge market here. We got to act and act now. Um, that, that could change the picture really quickly. So uh, next question are there any rumors, rumblings, or other about another, uh, the Moto Inside the Outdoors series? And for those of you who have never seen it, you know, the Moto Inside the Outdoors, a really awesome series done by Troy Adamitis. And it was kind of, um, you know, like Drive to Survive for F1. Um, there's one for MotoGP. I can't think of the name of it right now. Uh, but those have been wildly successful. And the, the Formula One series, I it kind of rewrote the expectation for success. I mean, everybody watched that show. Even if you weren't really into F1, people were still watching it. And being on Netflix was a gigantic part of that equation. But there is, there is a desire for things like that. Now, Red Bull has done their Moto Spy series, which they didn't do this year. But I think you'll see that come back. I, you know, I, I think those things are easily digestible. I think people like them. Um, but they're not cheap, right? So for Red Bull, they look at it and go, okay, well, this is a pure marketing spend. They don't make any money necessarily off making something like that. And it's not cheap, right? You have to, all the production costs, travel costs, like there's an insane amount of spend on Red Bull's end to continue selling a product that they already sell, you know? So it's where Drive to Survive, Netflix they live and die by content creation. If they don't create more content and expand their viewer numbers and do all these things, they're not in business anymore. So the spend makes sense for someone like Netflix to create something like that. For Red Bull, it's like on a whim, right? Do we want to do it or do we not? We don't have to. This is, these are discretionary spends. Like they could put that money towards Red Bull Straight Rhythm or whatever. Like there's a million different places they can use those dollars. It doesn't have to be to create a show like Red Bull Moto Spy. You know, the Moto Inside the Outdoors, they were able to sell that, right? They were selling DVDs. They were able to create revenue based off of that. They could sell, They you know, they get sponsorship dollars for the series. So it's a little bit different dynamic there. Um, now, to specifically answer the question, the only thing that I know of that's coming is there is a Jet Lawrence series coming. And I don't know if it's both brothers. It, it, I think it's a Red Bull creation, but it's about 
I think you'll see a lot of Jet in there. It's probably got Hunter in it too. There's just no way they're not making it and Hunter's not in it also with Hunter being a Red Bull athlete. But that's going to be pretty awesome, I think. I think for a lot of people, they're, they have a little bit of Jet Lawrence fatigue. I get it. I don't necessarily agree with it because I think he earned has earned every bit of it and we should be welcoming him and his personality and charisma and talent with both arms. We need it as a sport. We need to have these magnets to where all the media and all the people and all the fans and everybody are just drawn to. I think that's how you grow the sport. You know, the Tiger Woods and the Michael Jordan, you need that guy in your sport to, you need them to lure in just the the casual viewer, right? You need that name that everybody can identify with. And I think Jet Lawrence can be that. So I think, well, I know that show is coming, some sort of behind the scenes series on the Lawrence's and probably more heavily based around Jet. And our last question, uh, why are, and I wrote this one just for full disclosure, why are MXGP riders not coming over as often as they used to? And if you go back throughout history, right, you can go back to the 90s, you know, guys like Albertine, um, it, it's just been, as soon as guys got to the top, Sebastian Tortelli, uh, Mikhail Pichon, like it just, there's an endless amount of names and you start coming more modern Ken Roxons and Marvin Muscans and Dylan Ferranis's and just go on and on and on Eric Sorby um Christoph Purcell Australia Chad Reed Michael Byrne Craig Anderson uh just you know there's a ton Grant Langston from South Africa there's just a lot and I, I don't need to name them all you get the idea but the reason they came over before primarily was money Okay. Now, secondarily to that, prestige is a big deal, right? They wanted to be racing the most prestigious series in the world and racing against the best guys that there were to race against. And that, that was America. That's where you came. If you wanted to be the best of the best, you came to America to do it. And that's why everybody ended up here. Now, the money was a huge part of it. That, there's, there's no way that can be ignored because you could make five times, maybe more, maybe 10 times as much money racing in America that you could in Europe. That's not hyperbole. That's a hundred percent what the situation was. I remember when Sebastian Tortelli first came over, he had won two world championships and he came over, he was racing for Honda, getting crazy amount of money to race here. And I was really good friends with him. As a lot of you know, and we were kind of talking about the finances and economics of the sport or whatever. And I wasn't, I, I didn't know a lot about how much he was making in Europe or anything like that. I was much more uh, akin and, and up to speed on the American side. But for a world championship, he was only making a hundred grand. Okay. And that, I know that sounds like a lot of money to you and, and it, it is a lot of money, but in America to win, it was upwards of a million right? And, and it's gone up, like it maybe it was 500,000 at one time, but it's, it's a million dollars to win a championship in the, in the premier class, the 450 class in America, both Supercross and outdoors. That's a huge difference. Like obviously it's 10 times, um, you know, for the 250 guys, Supercross championships are typically half a million and outdoor championships are more in the 350. Maybe you could push it to 500, but Supercross is just weighted more heavily. Sponsors are willing to pay up more for Supercross championships versus outdoor. So when these guys are getting to be their best, right, and these American teams, whether it's Mitch Payton or Factory Honda or whoever, they're looking over across, this, you know, across the continent going, okay, who's the best of the best? If I bring this guy over, can they win? Which they have done a ton of like, look how successful Roxon's been. Look how successful Muscan was. Look how successful Ferranis has been. Look how successful Christoph Purcell was. Just go down the list. Uh, Tortelli won a ton of races here. Tortelli was like one of the only guys that could straight up beat Ricky Carmichael outdoors at any given time. So there was a really good reason for these teams to go poach those riders from Europe. They, they're look at Grant Langston, right? He came over and won a, won 450 titles, won two, two or three 250 titles. Um, so the, that was working. It wasn't like they didn't have clear motivation and reason to do it. And if you're the rider and you're on a team, let's say, um, 
I don't know, I'm trying to think of the right rider. Uh, let's say Ferrandis, okay? So it's a good example. And it's tough though, because he wasn't as great as he is now over there. But let's use him anyway. Let's say he was racing on a team and he was on uh, a factory Kawasaki team. He was probably making, I don't know, 100 grand maybe at the most salary, okay? Maybe less. I, it wasn't a lot. And this is going back a few years, okay? Let's say like 2015. He's probably making 100 grand at the most. If he won a race, it was not a crazy amount, you know, maybe 10,000 or something like that. And if he won the championship, it was 100,000. So his ability to get a really high end of year income wasn't that awesome, right? It, okay, compared to the average person, sure. But this is a relative, relative conversation. Fast forward to when he comes to America, I'm pretty up to speed on what he makes these days. And yes, this is after he won a 450 motocross championship. I, I get all those things. But for his bike deal, he's every bit of a million dollars, okay? For his gear deal, he's right there. If he's not in a million, he's close, right? He's in that anywhere from 750 to 1.1 range, which a bunch of guys are in. Um, so there's no way he's not making a couple million bucks, right? You add in last year, he wins an outdoor championship. He probably made two and a half million dollars last year. And I'm guessing, right? I'm, that's off the top of my head. I don't, I don't necessarily know. And it could be, if I really put pencil to paper, I could probably get a lot closer, but you got to think this is a couple of million dollars a year guy, no problem. And if you have a really good year, think 3 million plus now with the, his current contracts. Okay. That's why those guys are like, yeah, yeah, I'm on my way. Okay. So what happened was a couple years ago, these teams, you know, the MXGP crew, which is now in front, they got really sick of that. And they, they were really tired of losing their top talent. They were really sick of losing guys like Ken Roxon, who were the face of the sport for a while, right? They were on the brink of losing Jeffrey Hurlings, okay? They were on the brink of losing Jorge Prado. And they had to basically step up and offer more money, period. That's end of story. They had to get with the OEMs and say, hey, do you guys want to be serious about racing in Europe or not? Because if you don't, Tim Geiser and Hurlings and Febra and Prado, these guys are going to go to America. We've seen it. We've watched it happen for decades. We know it's going to happen. You know it. We know it. So what are we going to do about it? And I don't know who or when or where the decision was made, but if you look at it, they've obviously all done it because these guys make way more money now. Hurlings is on the very top level, right? He makes three, four, five million a year. You know, that's not counting wins and races and all that. His 2018 season when he won 18 GPs, he made like $3 million in bonuses from KTM that year alone, just bonuses. That's the difference. That's why those guys are like, yeah, I'll stay, you know, Prado, uh, these guys are like, nah, we'll just stay in Europe. You know, the money has gone up noticeably. And that's keeping them there because that, this is what they know. They're, they grew up in Europe, right? It's comfortable to them, the language, the travel, the culture, the tracks. They don't have to go try to learn Supercross. They're, they can stay in their bubble. They can stay comfortable with what they know. And now they can make a lot of money. You know, Fevra is a seven-figure guy now. Um, a few years ago, there's no way that was even close to being possible for him. But now he is. Between his Cowie deal and gear deal and all those things, he's a seven-figure guy. Um, you know, Cairoli was over his last couple of years was making over a million. You know, so that has fundamentally shifted. You know, you, and you start talking about the guys that are a little bit down. It's gotten better for them too, like the Pauls Jonas and uh, Jeremy Sewer and Koldenhoff. Those guys are making half a million, you know, like something like that. So it's the whole tide has come up for all those guys. And now they're not constantly looking for a deal in America to go make their money. That that's really what's changed before. It was always like, when's a deal going to open up in America? How fast can I get there? I need to go get over there and make money in my prime. So I don't have to work 10 hours a day, every day for the rest of my life that opportunity has now come to Europe for these guys. They are able to stay and make a lot of money 
and make MXGP their long-term path versus having to come to America. Whether they want to or not is not necessarily the question. A lot of them felt like if they were going to ever be financially stable, they had to. Okay, unless if you're Stefan Everts or Tony Cairoli and you win nine or 10 world titles, okay, yeah, sure, you're going to make a lot of money. I, I get it, right? That's a different dynamic. But guys like Seawer and Koldenhoff and uh, I don't know, take your pick of the middling guys, the Jonases, the guys that are can get on the podium, they're top 10 stables, you know, staples. Um, those guys weren't making a lot of money. They were going to have to go get a job after they were done racing. And now that, that dynamic is shifting to where, like, Koldenhoff makes a ton of money. I bet he's close to a million all in, right? And that, that's a huge change from five or eight or 10 years ago. And that's, in a nutshell, that's the difference. That's really it. It's not complicated. It's, it's purely economics. And, and I give those teams and I give them credit because those guys getting, think about it. Think about the difference where they had to win a world championship to get a hundred grand back when Tortelli was there. Now I know for a fact, if like Tim Geiser wins, it's a hundred grand. It's a hundred grand to win a GP. Think about how fundamentally much better that is and how much more enticing and comforting and if you're if you're like i don't really want to leave mxgp you don't have to anymore like there's plenty of money you get you hone your craft and you get really good at what you're doing like jeremy sewer he won a few weeks ago right won the overall 100 grand like boom done right and every podium he's probably making i would bet it's something like 140 20 or 150 30 or something like that there's a bunch of different ways it could be cut up but if you're racking up podiums week after week, you're making a ton of money. You can make six figures. You can make half a million just in bonuses, right? And, and that's life-changing money for these guys that they don't have to go hunt for in America anymore. And that's why you're just seeing that conversation not really there. Now, having said that, you're going to see Tom Vial come over, I think, in 2023. But he, he's kind of the outlier where he doesn't want to move up to MXGP and he's French, so he probably has some Supercross skills hidden in there somewhere. Um, but he's more of an outlier right now versus where it was just like rider after rider after rider was exiting exiting Europe for America. That's, that's just not what we're seeing anymore. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed some of those questions. Um, went longer than I actually thought that I would, but, uh, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking, uh, talking through those things. Again, thank you to Pirelli Tires. If you need new tires, if you're going to Loretta's, check out those uh, MX32 mid-softs. Those are my favorite. And Tony Cairoli was running that scoop tire. We, we covered that a few times on uh, Lucas Oprah Motocross. If you're riding in the sand, you cannot beat that tire, but it's, it's a really aggressive tire for most people. Uh, Plum Creek funding, mortgage rates are high. They're probably going higher. Um, so, you know, what I would recommend is calling Zach Morris. You can call him at 720-212-4685 and just ask him what your options are, right? You may be in a situation where he may have an answer for you, right? You may, you may be have in a situation where you have to buy a house. There's a lot of people right now. They don't have a choice. Mortgage rates are high or low or indifferent. They have to buy a house. Maybe they just got pregnant as a family and they need more room. Like some situations, it doesn't matter what interest rates are. You have to do something. So, at least get the best possible uh, situation, the best interest rate you can. Uh, reach out to Plum Creek Funding. Guts Racing, thank you to them. Obviously, they're a sponsor of the Rockstar Husky team. Andy Gregg and the crew over there, they can build you custom graphics. They, uh, they have lots of cool things that they, uh, they can hook you up with over there. Check out at Guts Racing on Instagram. Uh, Fast Foundry, they are uh, working more and more. And I've, I've been mentioning this for a while. They're working more and more with small businesses because things are going to get harder. They're not going to be no different than what fly racing is about to go through. Things are going to get more difficult versus there's just been money throwing, been thrown around everywhere and you could really be kind of asleep at the wheel as far as making sure that every, you know, T was crossed and die was audited. I, what? I was dotted. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I think you're just gonna have to pay attention and fast foundry can make you more efficient. They can find, uh, you know, the, what I believe is that money is going to be made in the margins, right? The, the little areas where you can find to cut costs, be more efficient, but do the same quality of work and, and still deliver on things that your clients expect. But how can you do that in the most efficient way possible? That's where I think you're going to win. And that's where I think Fast Foundry can help you. So reach out to the crew over there. 
uh, robert at fastfoundry.com uh, is his email. Works Connection, promo code is JT21, and those guys are just killing it on these starts. Uh, they're, they're like sweeping podiums, let alone the starts. So if you can't connect those two dots, I don't know that I'm going to be much help for you. Um, my advice is this. If you race, if you want to get a whole shot, get a pro launch start device. It's really that simple. There's a reason why all these teams run them. There's a reason why factory Honda runs them. There's a reason why monster star Yamaha runs them. Um, they're easy to use They're They don't break and they work really well. It's pretty, pretty basic. Uh, pro glow wash. Promo code is Moto15. Uh, I sh- probably should have worked in a question of the week, but uh, those guys over there, Proglo, are awesome. It's a true power sports wash, right? Why would you not use something that was built for power sports and everything's environmentally friendly? It's safe for all surfaces and finish. It's, you know, it's developed and supported by motorsports and power sports people. So check them out on social media and go to Proglo. There's, they're working on more products. Um, there's a lot more coming from these guys. So just keep an eye out. Pro, Pro Glow Wash is uh, it's a part of Pro Action Fluids. They, they have a lot of things going on, and you're going to see more and more from those guys. And uh, I'm personally really good friends with, uh, with Ryan over there. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a fun one, an easy one for me to, uh, to support. Uh, Grandstone Boots, as you know, they've been here from the beginning. Great product. They have wallets, belts, tons of loafers, low cut boots high i mean they have everything they're just to watch that come from basically just one product i remember their first shoe it was it was a boot but it was like a low cut and i had them i was like man this is really nice and to see their collection now it's pretty incredible um i i give those guys a ton of credit to see how far they've come and, and it's an honor for me to kind of be a part of that and finally fly racing as you know i talked about fly racing a lot in this podcast, you know, I, uh, I work there. So that's it for this week. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. If you have comments or feedback or anything like that, uh, you can hit me on social media or email me, tweet me, whatever. Um, but thank you for listening as always. And, uh, yeah, next week I will not be at Redbud, but I will certainly be watching it and covering it after that. Uh, that's an NBC event, so I don't get to do TV for that one. Uh, maybe one day, but, uh, but not for now. So I will be watching from the couch. See you guys.